0: The reading can be found in Exodus chapter 19, and we're reading verses 1 to 8. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: As we sit, let's pray. Our Father God, we pray for the guidance of your Holy Spirit as we reflect this morning on what it means to be your covenant people. In Jesus' name, Amen. This morning we're continuing our series on the people of God, which will feature at this service on the first Sunday of the month between now and next July. In October, we identified the biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation as God's project to redeem and rescue humanity. And we noted the improbable fact that while we are fundamentally the source of the problem, because of our sinful nature, nonetheless, God also wants to recruit us to be involved in the solution. So we noted that God calls people of faith to work with him, And the emphasis is on working together on his project. It is a team effort. We're not working on our own. And today we're going to look at the relationship between God and the team of people he has called to this task. What exactly is that relationship? Who is eligible to join the team? Does the relationship have a contractual element? And if so, what are the terms and conditions? How does involvement in God's project change our perception of ourselves? Now, the passage from Exodus 19, which was read to us, begins to answer some of these questions, at least in the context of the people of God in the Old Testament. So, in verses 3 and 4, God speaks through Moses to identify who constitute that people. They are the people of Israel whom God has rescued from Egypt, and has, in that memorable phrase, carried on eagles' wings. A friend alerted me to the fact that mother eagles are observed to carry their young on their backs in flight to protect the fledglings. So the image, then, is of a powerful intervention that gives full protection. In verses 1 and 2... So we notice the journey from Egypt to Sinai is briefly outlined. It was what the Lord had promised in Exodus 6, 1-8, that he would bring them up out of Egypt and their final destination would be the promised land. In accomplishing their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, they would come to understand God as more than just the creator, as the Lord, Yahweh, their redeemer. And the significance of this is emphasized in chapter 6, verse 7. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. So on the face of it, God's people in the Old Testament were those who came out of Egypt and made it to Sinai. We don't know if all the Hebrews, as the Egyptians apparently called their slave people, actually left Egypt. Or is some stay behind? And some may have returned once they realized that Moses was leading them into the very unwelcoming terrain of Sinai. The promised land must have looked a pretty hopeless destination at that point. So we must assume that those who made it to Sinai possessed at least some belief that Yahweh would fulfill his promise and that their leader Moses could be trusted. Moreover, The exodus experience would have been instrumental in uniting them as a people. Journeys are great for bonding travellers. Witness the way in which passengers on a delayed train in Britain will actually break the first rule of being a British passenger, which is you should not talk to one another. How much more uniting if the journey is difficult or perilous? But at Sinai, the relationship with God suddenly has a much more profound significance. The condition for being part of God's people has become much, much more exacting. Look with me at verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. The condition is, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then you will be my treasured possession. So what exactly does covenant imply? It's not a term we use generally in our culture as we tend to think of every formal relationship in terms of contract. Now, it's generally agreed that the covenant between the Lord and the people of Israel conforms to a pattern that was common in the ancient Near East in relationships between a great king and one of his subject people. The great king claimed absolute sovereignty. claimed absolute sovereignty and required total loyalty and service. In return, he offered protection and support for the subject people, but conditional on those people, those subjects, fulfilling their part in the relationship. In particular, the subject people pledged absolute loyalty, payment of tribute, and reliance on the great king to the exclusion of relationships with other rulers in the region. Failure to fulfill those pledges invited punishment. So was that what Yahweh was asking of the people at Sinai? Yes. He asked that they recognize him as their great Lord and trust him for protection and fulfillment of his promises. In short, that they recognize their status as his subjects. This arrangement no doubt sounds fairly strange to our way of thinking. We see international relations as predicated on the exercise of power and often the abuse of power. We don't like the spectacle of smaller nations having to submit and be obedient to the wishes of the great powers. But if we think like that, we will misunderstand the nature of God's covenant with Israel. Because God's covenant was based on his gracious desire to protect and care for his people, motivated by his great love for them. But the covenant came with implications. They needed to respond to him with love and thanksgiving, and show their gratitude by obedience to his stipulations. And those stipulations were not the arbitrary demands of a powerful ruler, but designed to ensure their flourishing. Note that this covenant is with All the people. In communicating the covenant to the people, Moses involves the elders, see verse 7, and they in turn communicate with the people. The people then together responded in verse 8, We will do everything the Lord has said. The implication is that everyone was included in the covenant, even if some harbored doubts about the promises of the Lord. This is another element of Old Testament covenant thinking that we probably find pretty strange at first. We think primarily of individuals and of groups as merely the aggregation of those individuals. Indeed, we probably find the idea of God's people as a collective conflicting with much that we value about individual autonomy. But we need to get to grips with this way of thinking if we are to understand God's dealings with his people in the rest of the Old Testament. You may find it helpful to think of how teams function, whether it's a sports team or any other group of people brought together for some other purpose. The best teams are those where the members work together, complementing each other's strengths and compensating each other's weaknesses. The people of God are his team, his instruments in pursuing his project of rescuing humanity. So what is the nature of God's people within the covenant? Look at verse 5. Then out of all nations you will be a treasured possession. The word possession probably implies no more than their subject status, within the covenant relationship with the Lord. The real surprise is treasured. A former slave people, stranded in the wilderness of Sinai with their flocks and as many possessions as they could carry, would not generally be regarded as a valuable asset to a great king. They could contribute very little in the form of monetary tribute or agricultural provisions, nor were they well-equipped fighting men. They were treasured only because the Lord had chosen them to be his people. And then secondly, you will be for me, verse 6, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests. Here's another surprise. The full development of the cult of the tabernacle and later the temple had not taken place. The priestly caste had yet to emerge from the tribe of Levi. And at that point, the priestly role was restricted to a few families. So what exactly was the role of the priest? The priest in Israel stood between the people and God. He stood between the people and God. He represented the people to God in his sacrificial role. He also represented God to the people, a teaching function making God known. Here the whole of Israel is called to be a kingdom of priests to perform these roles for all nations. And it seems likely that it is the latter role which is intended here. Israel was to be an exemplary people in their relationship with God, pointing the way to other nations around them. And this leads on to the third description of the people of God in this passage. They are to be a holy nation. This has two dimensions. First, the people are to be set apart. A holy nation, distinct from other peoples, not least in their commitment to the Lord in the covenant. Second, they were to live differently in obedience to the Lord. They were to be distinct in their behavior and social structures. As you shall see in our next sermon in this series, they were to be an example to the nations of how God has ordered human life, how human beings should live their lives. Now you may well be thinking at this point, this is all very Old Testament and not very relevant to the Christian community. So at this point, perhaps we should recall some words from 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. Peter here is writing to the early Christian communities in Asia Minor. So 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have Receive mercy. The phrases used by Peter are more or less identical to those communicated to Moses in Exodus 19. That is, we, the church, are to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And for what purpose? To declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So briefly, what should it mean for us to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation? A chosen people. The implication is evident. We are God's new covenant people. St. Paul makes the point at the end of his letter to the Galatian church. After explaining that in Christ they are a new creation, he calls them the Israel of God, a covenant people. So what does it mean to be a covenant people? First, it means that God has chosen us as a group to be his people. He loves us and cares for us in all our diversity and despite our failings. In God's eyes, we belong together. We need each other and we are stronger together. As is evident in those places in our world where the churches are being persecuted. Now, it's very easy for us in a church to fall into the habit of relating only to those with whom we feel affinity. And of course, it makes perfect sense to have activities that are targeted at particular groups like young people, mothers and toddlers, men. So long as we recognize That grouping of activities is for convenience only. And we need to work hard to have other activities that bring us all together. Second, God asks in return that we recognize him as our Lord. Give him complete loyalty and obedience. And trust him for his protection and fulfillment of his promises. There's a variety of ways in which we can do this, but central is our worship every Sunday. That's what we are doing now. We come together to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, remembering what he has done for us, and praising him in our worship. In the college chapels in this city, the collective nature of worship is underlined by seating the congregation facing inwards, across the central aisle. St. Chad's Church in Shrewsbury is completely round. Apparently the result of a misunderstanding between the church wardens and the architect at the time of rebuilding in the 18th century. A rather massive misunderstanding. But there, you can see all your fellow worshippers and they can see you. By sitting in rows, as we do here, that sense of being a body of worshippers tends to be lost. The peace is one way of emphasizing our unity, though I'm well aware that not everyone finds it helpful. But just making sure that we all join in the congregational words of the liturgy, in the Amen at the end of prayers, and even in singing the hymns, can contribute greatly to our joint worship. We worship together, not as individuals. Now our second designation, according to St. Peter, is as a royal priesthood. That means it's our role to represent God to those outside our number, to make Christ known. We tend to think of evangelism as slightly scary individual effort And no doubt there will be occasions when that is our responsibility. But it is too narrow a concept. When outsiders look at our church community, they should be confronted by a group of people whose purposes in living and whose life together reflect the Jesus whom they serve. Graham Tomlin, who will be known to some of us, and now Bishop of Kensington, wrote a book entitled The Provocative Church, which captures the point that our corporate life should raise questions in the minds of an unbelieving culture. But it is also our responsibility to act as priests by representing people to God. Have you realized that that is the point of our intercessions Sunday by Sunday? Our intercessions are enormously important. We're bringing to God the needs of our world and asking for his mercy and peace. And we can do that because we are his covenant people and he will hear our prayers. Our third designation is a holy nation. But this sermon is already long enough so we will save that up for next time. When our focus will be on how our life together can reflect the flourishing that God desires for his human creatures and be an example to those outside the church. So let us remind ourselves gathered here this morning that we are God's covenant people. We are a chosen people. We are a royal priesthood. And we are a holy nation. And let that thought permeate every aspect of our life as a church. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that we are your chosen covenant people, that through Christ you brought about our exodus and freed us from slavery to sin. We pray that our corporate life and worship will strengthen our unity as your people and that we will faithfully fulfill our role as a royal priesthood, making Christ known and interceding for our world. In Christ's name, amen.